Well, amen. That's worthy of a holy shout. Let's say, holy, holy, holy is our God on three. One, two, three. Holy, holy, holy is our God. That is good. Remain standing and take your Bibles. Uh, Let's affirm with Jesus and the apostles. The Bible is sufficient. It's clear. It's authoritative. It's necessary. And it is inerrant. And we want to read from God's Word. James 5, 7 through 12. If you need a pew Bible, it's one in front of you on page 1202. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the thought that you have come, but you are coming again. And Lord, we have sung of it, we have read of it. Now we ask that you would open our hearts to hear it, and not only hear it, but to heed what you have taught by your Spirit through James in this letter. And if there are those who are enduring hard times, who are suffering, who are anxious, or seeing others who are suffering, may we be encouraged this morning again to persevere, for you grant us the grace to be patient until you come. Behold, you stand at the door. You could come at any moment. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. We are resuming our series through the book of James, and we have taken a break for the holidays during the month of December and the first couple Sundays in January, and we're now resuming this series. We have three Lessons left here at the end of chapter 5, today and then next Sunday, and we will conclude then the following Sunday here in the book of James. History.com gives this account on this day in history, October 20th, 1944. General Douglas MacArthur served as chief U.S. military advisor to the Philippines before World War II. In the early dark days of World War II, the United States military in the Pacific Theater was was reeling after the disastrous sneak attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. The Japanese forces began a, a series of invasions across the Pacific. The day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, Japan launched its invasion of the Philippines. And after struggling against great odds to save his adopted home from Japanese conquest, MacArthur was now forced to abandon the Philippine island fortress of Corregidor under orders from President Franklin Roosevelt in March of 1942. Left behind at Corregidor and on the Bataan Peninsula were 90,000 American and Filipino troops who, Lacking food and supplies and support would soon succumb to the Japanese offensive. It was MacArthur's hope, though, that Allied troops stationed in Australia would be able to help him get the troops out. 
during his journey to Australia, he was informed, though, that there were, were far fewer Allied troops in Australia than he had hoped for. And so now relief of his troops who were trapped in the Philippines would, would not be forthcoming. But MacArthur was determined to return to his troops, continue the fight, and lead as many of his men as possible to safety. Once he arrived in Melbourne, he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men and the people of the Philippines, I shall return. The promise would become his mantra during the next two and a half years, and he would repeat this often in public appearances. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, Bataan fell in April, and the 70,000 American and Filipino soldiers captured there were forced to undertake what is called a death march, in which at least 7,000 perished. Then in May, Corregidor surrendered, and 15,000 more Americans and Filipinos were captured. The Philippines were lost, and the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff had no immediate plans for their liberation. After the U.S. victory at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, most Allied resources in the Pacific went to U.S. Admiral Nimitz, who as commander of the Pacific Fleet planned a more direct route to Japan rather than the Philippines. Undaunted by this, though, MacArthur launched a major offensive in New Guinea, winning a string of victories with his limited forces. And by September of 1944, he was poised to launch an invasion of the Philippines, but he needed the support of Nimitz Pacific Fleet. After a period of indecision about whether to invade the Philippines, the Joint Chiefs put their support behind MacArthur's plan. And on October the 20th, 1944, on this day in history, a few hours after his troops landed, MacArthur waded onto the shore of the Philippine island of Leyte. That day, he made a radio broadcast in which he declared, People of the Philippines, I have returned. General MacArthur's promise to return, it gave hope. In fact, it gave tremendous hope to thousands of American and Filipino POWs. These prisoners of war endured brutal and horrific conditions as they waited for MacArthur's return, the the promise of his return. It inspired hope within them to persevere under this immense suffering. The promise of his return, it, it inspired them to patiently endure their suffering as POWs. Now, The original readers of James' letter here, in which we are studying, were also very familiar with severe, in fact, prolonged suffering as well. We already learned uh, back earlier in chapter 5 that James tells us that these believers, they were being oppressed, they were being defrauded by these rich, wicked landowners, they were enduring this suffering of injustice and oppression and economic hardship. And as as day laborers who worked for these landowners, these believers here that James is now writing to were were being defrauded out of their wages. And, And some of them were even murdered directly at the hands of these wicked landowners or indirectly through their control of the courts. And while these Wicked landowners, as we learned previously in chapter 5, lived in luxury. They lived in self-indulgence, storing up treasure in these last days. James announced that they should weep, they should howl, for judgment is coming upon them. And now here in verse 7, James turns their attention to the coming of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he turns our attention. He turns the attention of these suffering believers he's writing to who are being oppressed. And so with great pastoral care, with great love, James exhorts them now to cultivate what we are calling patient endurance. And he draws their attention to none other than the coming of the Lord as their ultimate hope in the midst of their suffering. And so in response of their suffering, they are to be 
patient as they anticipate the promised coming of the Lord. And so what James now says to these suffering believers in his day, listen, it has great significance. It has great practical relevance for suffering believers even today. Here's what we see. Here's the big idea of what James is writing to us and telling us even now, that in the midst of our suffering, our hope is the return of the Lord. And our response is to be patient till He comes. And so what we see in these verses beginning in chapter, beginning of chapter 5, verse 7 through verse 12, is we see three points about the necessity of patience and suffering. In fact, even the priority of patience and suffering. And so notice number one here, patient endurance, it looks to the Lord's coming. Patient endurance is the, is the application of what James has already said in the previous verses here in chapter 5. If you go back to those verses, he assured these suffering believers that their cries of injustice have actually reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so imagine the comfort it would have been to be assured that that God hears their cries and he will bring justice to their situation. So they must not compromise their faith. They must not retaliate and seek revenge. Instead, James tells them in verse 7, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so patient endurance, if you want a definition of it, here it is. It is the God-glorifying response to our suffering. And in the context of, of James' day in which he's writing to these believers, their suffering included injustice and oppression. And so patient endurance is, is the God-glorifying response to, to their injustice to their oppression and suffering. And this should sound rather familiar to us as James now returns to this call of patient endurance that he began way back at the beginning of the letter. It's how he started this letter. If you remember back in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? steadfastness. Just another way of saying patient endurance. One commentator, Alec Motier, writes, James' doctrine of the Christian life is a doctrine of process or growth and patience. Get this, it's its central requirement. Oh, man. In other words, this this central requirement of patience It's what's necessary, but it is not our natural inclination, is it? Our natural inclination is to resent our suffering. Our natural inclination is to retaliate against those who are causing our suffering. And James is aware of this, and so he exhorts us here to be patient in the midst of our suffering even though this is not our natural inclination. And so, no doubt, it requires an abundance of grace. And James knows just where to go for that grace. He directs our focus on what? On the Lord's return. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So what is it that inspires us to be patient in the midst of suffering? Whether your suffering is great or whether it is small, what inspires it to be patient? It's our anticipation, James says, of the Lord's coming. In fact, it is our confidence in the promise of the Lord's return. You see, patience has a very specific hope to it. And that is the coming of the Lord. And without this hope, we will give in to temptation. We will give up in our suffering. But by anticipating the Lord's return, it creates this patience for present suffering. In fact, it's our confidence 
in the promise of this Lord's return that inspires patient endurance in the midst of our suffering. James knows this. He knows that this hope has a a grace-empowering impact on our lives. He knows that, that patient endurance is sustained by the hope of the Lord's promised return. That means that our suffering, again, whether your suffering is small, whether it is great, or somewhere in between, it has an end date to it. Our suffering, yes, there are times where it seems unending, but it will not be forever. When Jesus returns, our suffering will end. Listen, sin will be judged and justice will be done. Therefore, in light of this future that we are anticipating with the Lord's return, James exhorts us to be what? Be patient till the Lord comes. And then James provides for us an everyday example of the sort of patience that he is calling for. Look what he writes in the rest of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And so we have this example or this illustration of patience, and the point is very clear. We are to be patient like a farmer. See how he waits for the harvest, patiently waiting for the early and the late rain. So for people in James' day, listen, farming was woven into their everyday life, into the fabric of their life. Farming was how most people lived and survived when James wrote this letter. So the people in James' day, they knew that patience is required of farmers. It's required if you were going to be a farmer. Listen, patience was not optional for a farmer. They knew farmers were patient specifically when it came to waiting on God to bring the rains, the early rains and the late rains. And so we see here that the farmer is dependent upon something that he cannot control, the rains. The early and the late rains. Douglas Moo, another commentator, writes, the farmer who prepares a field, sows seed, and then waits for a crop is a very natural illustration of patience. He can do little to affect the outcome, but must wait and pray for the right rain at the right time. In Palestine, the farmer was particularly dependent upon the rain that came in late autumn and early spring. In between these times of the early rain and the late rain, the farmer did what? He worked hard, tending his fields and keeping the weeds at bay, but he could do nothing to accelerate the process of bringing the crops to harvest. He had to wait. And he had to wait patiently. Listen, the farmer had to wait on God's faithfulness. He had to wait on God's goodness to bring the rains at the right time or else there would be no harvest. The farmer is completely dependent upon the Lord and the stakes were high. Listen, his survival, his family's survival is dependent upon these rains that God brings. And so we see that a key to patience is trust. A complete trust in the Lord and His timing. And so just as a farmer must trust in the Lord to bring the rains, we here as Christ followers, we must trust in the Lord's promise to return. And as we look to the Lord's promise return, it should inspire us to be patient in suffering. And so we see, first of all, that patient endurance in suffering, it looks to something. It looks specifically to the Lord's coming. And this kind of patience requires something of us, though. James is very specific about what it requires if you're going to have patient endurance. And that brings us to our second point here. Notice that patient endurance requires 
an established heart. Look what James writes here in verse 8. He says, you also be patient. So immediately, James doubles down again on this necessity and priority of patient endurance and suffering by telling us twice now to be patient. And then he urges us in the remainder of verse 8 to do something. Look what he writes. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So this is active patience. This is active waiting. It is not passive. And so just as a farmer is is very active in his field while waiting for the rains to come, we too are to be active while waiting for Jesus to come. The question is, active doing what? Well, James does not leave us to guess. He tells us specifically. While waiting in suffering, first of all, notice this, we are to strengthen our hearts by contemplating the coming of the Lord. While we wait for the Lord to come, there is work for us to do. And that work is centered on our hearts. We are to establish or strengthen our hearts. Why? Because, let's be honest here, most of us, for us, we our hearts are weak. Our hearts need to be established. They need to be strengthened, especially in times of suffering. Our hearts, in other words, are not to be ruled by our suffering. Rather, we are to strengthen our hearts so that we may persevere in the midst of our suffering and remain faithful to Jesus under the pressure of our suffering. You say, how is that even possible? James tells us how it's possible. He tells us how we are to do this. It is by anticipating, it's by contemplating the coming of the Lord. This, James says, this is what strengthens our hearts. Listen, it's not dwelling on our suffering. That will only weaken your hearts. That will only cause bitterness to swell up in your hearts. We strengthen our hearts by lifting our eyes off of our suffering and fixing our eyes on the Lord's promised return. And James says that Jesus' coming is what? It is at hand. In other words, it is near. In fact, there is very little that now stands in the way for Jesus to come. And so his coming is near. The day of justice and judgment, it is not far off. So strengthen your heart. How? By contemplating and anticipating the coming of our Lord. Patient endurance, in other words, it is is the fruit of of an established heart, a heart that has been strengthened by contemplating the Lord's promised return. This is where you go when your heart is weak in the midst of suffering. You turn to the promise that Jesus is coming again. You don't turn to the temporal things of this world. You turn to the wonderful future that awaits us with his coming. And this is the work that we do while waiting and suffering. Why? Because this is the hope that will inspire patient endurance and suffering. And so something's going on here with James. I don't know if you're catching it, but he expects something here of us. He expects that the promised return of the Lord will make a difference in our lives. He expects that when we contemplate and when we focus on and anticipate the Lord's return, it will inspire something in us, and that is patient endurance. It will make a difference. James knows that the next big event on God's plan of redemption is the Lord's 
return. Listen, nothing else remains on God's calendar before Jesus returns. Do you realize that? We are living. He's already told us previously in the previous section, we're living in these last days. And so his coming is is the grounds. It's the basis, in other words, for our patient endurance. And so while we wait, and especially in the midst of suffering, we are to strengthen our hearts by anticipating that coming, contemplating that coming of the Lord. But he also gives us a warning as well. He says, number two, that we are to guard against grumbling against one another so that we will not be judged. We see this in verse 9. When he writes, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so James, is he's alerting us to something to be on guard about. He's alerting us to, to the temptation that comes about when we are in the midst of suffering and waiting. And that is the temptation to grumble against one another. And so this call to patient endurance, it should impact our relationships with one another within the church specifically. In other words, if we don't strengthen our hearts, if we don't cultivate patience in the midst of suffering, then then more than likely we will find ourselves vulnerable to the temptation of what? Grumbling against one another here within the church. When our hope is not fixed on the Lord and His coming, then we will often redirect our hope and put it on others. That's a recipe for disaster. Because when we do that, let me tell you, disappointment is inevitable and grumbling is soon to follow. Grumbling, in other words, listen, it is the evidence of one's misplaced hope. It's the evidence that we have put our hope on people instead of the Lord. When we grumble against others, it reveals we are demanding from others what only God can provide for us. Alec Mortier, the the same commentator on the book of James I read earlier, if I may quote him again, he says, Press from outside by opponents waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet seems not to come, how easily tempers can fray and the fellowship begin to fall apart. How easy to begin to take it out on each other to find cause for complaint within the family. And so this warning to guard against grumbling is very real within the church family. James knows that. He's he's tackling that. He's calling it out. Listen, it is all too easy for those who are suffering to grumble against those who are not suffering. Because we think that they don't care enough. They, they, They don't reach out enough. They don't do enough to help ease my suffering. So I grumble against them. And those who are not suffering, are are tempted to grumble against those who who are suffering because we think they're, well, you're not trusting the Lord. You're not hoping in the Lord. You're not rejoicing in the Lord as you should. But notice the motivation to guard against grumbling here in verse 9. James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Why? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so James here, he lovingly warns us that grumbling places us in danger of being judged by God. In other words, being disciplined by God. You see, our temptation it is, is to actually think that grumbling is, is minor. That's probably what most of us here think about grumbling. It's just minor. Why? Because everybody does it. It's minor. It's no big deal to grumble, to verbalize my grumbling. But God 
thinks otherwise. Grumbling is a serious sin in the eyes of God, so much so that we will be disciplined by God, James says. And do not think for one moment that God is unaware of our grumbling against one another. The judge is standing where? He is standing at the door. And so God is is fully aware of our grumbling. At any moment, he might turn the handle and open the door. And so we are to speak in such a way to one another that we would not be ashamed of Jesus hearing our talk. Knowing that God is standing at the door. Listen, this, this should motivate us to guard ourselves against grumbling against one another. It should motivate us, in other words, to to please the one who loves us, the one who has saved us and is coming back for us by by not grumbling against one another. And so while waiting in suffering, we need to be alert. We need to be on guard for this temptation of grumbling against others within the church. This, This, by the way, this is how we protect the church. This is how we preserve the unity of the church. This is how we promote the gospel in the midst of suffering. You strengthen your heart, first of all, with the promised return of the Lord, and we guard ourselves against grumbling against one another. But James is not finished yet. He actually adds on in verse 12, and he gives us another exhortation or admonition Number three, notice this, he tells us to maintain integrity in your speech by speaking the truth at all times. So once again, James turns our attention to the significance of how we speak. In other words, our tongue, which James has referred to the tongue many times over in this book. He does so again here, and look what he writes in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So while waiting with patient endurance and suffering, James is telling us that that we are to maintain our integrity in speech by speaking the truth at all times. We are to be truthful. We are to be trustworthy in our speech at all times, not just when we are under oath. The word swear here that James uses does not refer to profanity. That's normally what we think of when we hear the word swear. Tell our kids, don't swear. Why? They're they're cussing. That's not what this word means. It refers to taking an oath. And so James probably has in mind oaths that invoke God's name specifically to underline the reliability of, of a promise that we have made. James may be calling out unrealistic vows made by these believers who are suffering in the midst of their economic hardships, and those kind of vows made in the heat of the moment will be easily broken. At the same time, please understand, oaths are not universally condemned in the rest of Scripture. The point here that I believe James is making is this. Not that all oaths are always wrong, but that oaths should be unnecessary in our everyday life as we speak to one another, as we even make promises to one another. We shouldn't need to emphasize the truthfulness of our speech. Why? Because all of our speech should be true and trustworthy. And so James is not ruling out speaking under oath, such as in a courtroom or being sworn in for public service in the military or as a police officer, but rather he's ruling out ever needing to swear an oath in everyday life. Why? Because everything that we say as Christ followers, it should be true. It should be trustworthy even while we are waiting in suffering. And so James here in this passage, he's exhorting us that in the midst of suffering, our hope is what? It is the coming of the Lord. And our response to our suffering is what? It is to be patient till he comes. Why? Because number three, notice this, 
patient endurance culminates in God's blessing. Now, to help us see this, James provides us with two more examples to inspire within us this patient endurance in the midst of suffering. The example of the prophets in general and the example of Job in particular. In both, experience God's blessing by remaining steadfast in suffering. Look what James writes now in verse 10 and 11. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So two examples. The first example is the patience of the prophets in general. Now the prophets, who are they? Uh, We think of the prophets in the Old Testament. They were God's servants to God's people, and oh, were they familiar with suffering. It was their lot in life. Why? James tells us why. Because they did what? Because they spoke in the name of the Lord. And as a result, they were often opposed for it. The prophets suffered at the hands of God's people, no less, because that God's people didn't like what the prophets had to say. Can you imagine when the prophets rebuked Israel for sin? The people, God's people, they ignored the prophets. They opposed the prophets. They even persecuted the prophets because they, they didn't want to hear their God-given message. The prophets suffered, get this, not because they did anything wrong. These prophets suffered because they were doing right. They were speaking in the name of the Lord. And so the prophets' faithfulness did not exempt them from suffering. In fact, if anything, their faithfulness to God actually exposed them to more suffering. For example... Jeremiah was told by God to get up and preach, but nobody was going to listen to him. I think if God would tell me that, I would have quit right then and there. Jeremiah obeyed God nonetheless, and he faithfully preached the truth to God's people, and as a result, he faced constant persecution. In fact, on one occasion, Jeremiah was thrown into an empty well where he was left to sink in the cold mud, And he would have died had he not been rescued. Micah was ridiculed and slandered for his message of truth. Zechariah was murdered for his faithfulness to God. Isaiah, who was eventually placed, get this, into a hollow tree and sawn in half by his king for his faithfulness. Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos also experienced hostility, and yet they endured that hostility with patience. In fact, the prophets endured prolonged suffering as they continue to faithfully speak for the Lord. And James points to these prophets as our example. They are an example of suffering. And did you notice it? He also has this connection point of and what? Impatience. They They stand as an example for us today of suffering with patience. And the implication here that James is making with this example is that we are to follow their example of patient endurance in the midst of our own suffering here today. But notice the honor that is given to these prophets in verse 11 as well. Behold, in other words, look. Take notice, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. That is, we look at these prophets and and we recognize that the blessing of God has rested on them. Now, don't don't misunderstand what blessed here means. Blessed doesn't mean an emotional state of happiness, as our culture seems to think. But rather, it is the approval or the reward of God. In other words, the blessing of God is that the smile of God is resting upon your life. 
that does not exempt you from suffering, though. We see that in this example of the prophets. In fact, we saw this earlier in James chapter 1, verse 12, where James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This is not only confirmed by the prophets, it is confirmed by other believers or saints throughout church history as well. Let me give you two examples, such as David Brainerd. Probably never heard of David Brainerd. He was a missionary to American Indians who died of tuberculosis at age 29. He called his own personal suffering with sickness and loneliness in the wilderness, get this, he called it a a sweet resignation. He wrote in his diary on Sunday, March 10th, 1744, my soul was, was sweetly resigned to God's disposal of me in every regard, and I saw there had nothing happened to me but what was best for me. John Bunyan. Some of you may have heard of that name because he is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. He was a British pastor who suffered in prison for 12 years. In fact, he wrote many Many, he wrote much while he was in prison. He pastored a church of about 120 people. Many of his congregants were going through suffering as well. And he wrote his counsel to them who were suffering. And here's what he says to them. I have, in a few words, handled this. That is, handled my own suffering with patience to show that our sufferings are ordered and disposed by God. That you might always, when you come into trouble for his name, not stagger, nor be at loss, but be stayed, composed, and settled in your minds, and say, the will of the Lord be done. How kindly, therefore, does God deal with us when he chooses to afflict us, but for a little, that with everlasting kindness he may have mercy upon us. And James is exhorting us here and saying, take the prophets. In other words, he expects us to have some knowledge of these prophets and to take other saints as well who were patient in suffering and to follow their example. In other words, look to them and let them inspire you to be patient in your own suffering today. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us another example, and this is the perseverance of Job in particular. Look what James says in verse 11 here. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, that was not only true for James' audience, that they heard about Job's steadfastness. That is true for a lot of us here as well. Most of us here, we have heard of the name Job in the Old Testament. We have heard of his story. Job was a righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil. But then one day, as most of us understand and know, he lost everything. His possessions were stolen. His servants were murdered. His children, all ten of them, were killed. And on top of that, Job was struck with these very painful sores. His wife told him to curse God and die. And even his friends, in their attempt to provide some comfort to him, him, ended up just adding to his suffering. Yet through it all, Job persevered. He remained steadfast in his pursuit of God. No, not without complaining, not without questioning God. You read through the book of Job and you find that Job cried out loudly to God. Why was I even born, God? Why am I suffering when I tried to be faithful to you, Lord? Why do I cry out to you, God, and get no answers to my suffering? And Job never gets the answers of his why questions. But that's because all of Job's why questions get answered by the who question when God compassionately and mercifully reveals himself to Job. And so even though Job complained, even though he questioned God, he never renounced his faith in God. In fact, in the midst of his suffering, Job said of God in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, 
I will hope in Him. Later on in Job 19.25 and 26, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. That's what James wants us to see here. That in Job's suffering, as well as in our suffering, when he writes in the remainder of verse 11, and you have seen, seen what? You have seen the purpose of the Lord that is in your suffering. What exactly? How the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. Now, of course, part of this is what the Lord did for Job at the end of his story. God graciously restored Job's fortunes. God lovingly gave him a new family. But I think a much greater blessing is what the Lord did in Job's heart. Because when it was all said and done, Job responded to God in Job 42, 3 through 6. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's what happens when we're patient in suffering. We begin to see. And what do we see? We begin to see how the Lord truly is. He is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God, even in the midst of our suffering. Edmund Hebert, another commentary, writes, Men often fail to understand the true character of God as he permits them to endure oppression and injustice. James, James gently reminds his readers that, that if they will also remain loyal to God amid their trials, they will also come to the personal realization of the kindly nature of God. He is compassionate. And he is merciful. Job's suffering is not the end of the story. God blessed Job by showing himself to be compassionate and merciful. In the end, God revealed himself to Job. In the end, Job was comforted by God. In the end, Job was vindicated by God. This was God's purpose for Job. And it revealed to Job the Lord's compassion and mercy for him. And James is reminding us here that our suffering as well, it is not the end of the story. Blessing. Blessing is the end. If, if, if we will respond to our suffering with patient endurance like the prophets did and Job did. The end of the story, the reason James writes about this, it is meant to comfort us. It is meant to motivate us to persevere in the midst of our suffering. Listen, do you realize that God, Job's God, is our God? They are not two different gods. The God who is compassionate and merciful to Job is compassionate and merciful to you here today. As C.J. Mahaney says, the first casualty in suffering is a biblical perspective on our suffering. You know what Job's doing here? He's giving us that perspective. By drawing our attention to the end in order to inspire patience in us today. He draws our attention to the coming of the Lord. And he says, listen, fix your hope on the promise of the Lord's return. He draws our attention to the farmer. And he says, listen, be patient like the farmer who trusts in the goodness of God, who trusts in the faithfulness of God to bring the rains. And in the end, that farmer does what? He reaps a harvest. He draws our attention to the prophets and to Job. And he says, listen, you follow their example. These guys remain steadfast in suffering. And in the end, they were blessed by God. 
What is James saying to us here? He's saying, don't measure your suffering before the end. In other words, don't give up on God before the end. Instead, He is imploring, He is exhorting, He is urging us with all He has as a pastor, be patient in suffering till Jesus comes. Listen, you're suffering. You may be suffering now, but your suffering is not the end. Blessing is the end if you will patiently endure to the coming of the Lord. Unlike these believers in James' day, you realize we have all of God's Word. That means we have the book of Revelation. That means we know the end. That means we know how it will end when Jesus comes. Let me leave you with a glimpse of that end in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and then we will pray and be done. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who has, was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word here in James. Thank you for being faithful when we are faithless. And God, we ask that you you would give us patient endurance in the midst of whatever trials and sufferings we're facing. God, may you give us the grace to remain steadfast till Jesus comes. It's in his name we pray. Amen.